Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 271st episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, I'm bringing you a location suggested to me by listener Sarah Clark. That is Belgrove Plantation in Virginia. This house has centuries of history behind it, and it would seem a lot of spirits as well. We'll see what you think when I get done telling you about it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Monica, Jesse with an I, Ariel, Jenny with a Y, Lily with an I, Sherry with an I, Cindy, Jenny with one N and an I, Stephen with a V, Corey with a Y, Anne with an E, Lindsay, Juwampi, Sari, Shane, Heather, Maricris, Lori, Emily, Lori with an I, Emily, Tellen, Jennifer, Kate with a C and an I, Destiny with an IE, Andrea G, and Andrea O, who hails from my hometown of Aurora, Colorado. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Rachel Gates. The Native American tribe known as the Potawatomi had a chief at one time named Big Thunder because he had a deep, booming voice. When his time on Earth was coming to an end, he instructed his tribe of people to place him facing the West. He wanted to be prepared to help his tribe fight in a great battle that was coming. He promised that he would come back and lead them to victory. He died around 1800, and Chief Big Thunder was placed on a bench on a high spot facing the West. A fence was placed around him to protect the body. The battle he foretold never happened, and so he never rose from the dead. His tribe brought him tokens like tobacco and placed it in his lap. Big Thunder was not left at peace for very long, though, because a stagecoach trail ran near his burial spot, and relic hunters took the chief's bones and placed them on display. His skull was taken by Dr. Josiah Goodhue, and legend claims that it ended up at Rush Medical College, but was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Dr. Goodhue had been a successful doctor who designed the first city seal for Chicago, and he is the one who changed the city of Midway's name to Rockford. Despite being a good man, Dr. Goodhue would fall under a curse by the Potawatomi tribe. They were enraged that their chief's grave had been desecrated and his bones stolen, and they felt that the theft of his skull was the most egregious. They swore that the curse would give them revenge. Dr. Goodhue had just left a patient's house when he fell headfirst into a freshly dug well. He died shortly after his rescue. The death of Dr. Goodhue could just be a coincidence, but around here we don't believe in those. And the circumstances of his death certainly are odd. Pulling the covers up tight. 
That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of August, on the 11th in 1965, the Watts riots began in Los Angeles. Two white policemen pulled over a black driver suspected of drunk driving in the predominantly black Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. The area was already experiencing racial tension, and when a gathering crowd saw the arrest taking place, they became angry as they thought the incident was racially motivated. The anger fomented into a riot that moved from just a corner to several streets to a 50-square-mile area of south-central Los Angeles. The rioters looted stores, fought with whites, and burned buildings. The National Guard had to be called in to restore order. The riots had lasted for five days and left 34 people dead, 1,032 people injured, nearly 4,000 people arrested, and $40 million worth of property destroyed. Other riots would happen throughout the 60s in other cities like Detroit and Newark as well. Belgrove Plantation is an estate and plantation house dating back into the 18th century that's witnessed over 300 years of history. And this includes colonization, the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, and is famously known as the birthplace of President James Madison. The pursuit of John Wilkes Booth also touched the grounds of this beautiful property. This is one of the best preserved 18th century homes in America and has been restored to its former beauty and runs today as a bed and breakfast. One claim to fame that is not as well known is just how haunted this property allegedly seems to be, and that reputation led it to being featured on Ghost Hunters. There are reputedly dozens of ghosts lurking about the manor. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of Belgrove Plantation. I have to tell you, when I sat down to do the research on this one, I got very confused for a few reasons. Number one being, James Madison has a sister who has the same name as their mother. So as I was researching things and looking at who his mother was, and then I was seeing who owned another property that also I'm going to talk about in a moment here, I kept going, well, how can this Nellie woman be both his mother and his sister? That's not possible. So I finally figured out that both the women had the same name. Not something that traditionally happens a lot, but there were a few families that did name daughters for the mother. And then the other issue I ran into is not only is there a Belgrove plantation in Louisiana, but there's another Belgrove plantation in Virginia. There's two of them, and they are named for each other. So once I figured out exactly which plantation I was supposed to be looking at and which one James Madison was actually born at, I was able to lay down the research. But I tell you, for a while I was pulling out my hair trying to figure out how are all these things possible? Why am I getting this information over here? And this information over here, they conflict with each other. And then I realized that they were all different locations and different people. (laughs) 
The land where the plantation would later be located started off as a land grant back in 1667. The land would pass down through the generations until we come to Francis and Alice Thornton. They had a daughter named Elizabeth in 1673, and she married Edwin Conway. They had one child together before Edwin died, and they named him Francis. He would marry Rebecca Catlett, and the couple would inherit the 700-acre property that came to be known as Port Conway, named for the Conway family. They had six children, and one of their daughters was Eleanor Rose Conway, who would marry James Madison Sr., and they would have James Madison Jr., who would later become President of the United States. Eleanor was known as Nellie, and she returned to her paternal home to have James, so the fourth president was born on the property, but not at Belgrove Plantation as it is today. The home he was born in burned down shortly after his birth. The foundation reputedly can still be seen on the property, although I'm not exactly sure where. I did see some stories that said that the house that's there now was built on the foundation, and then I found some other stories that said that the foundation could be seen on the property, which indicated to me that the house was not built on that foundation. Francis and Rebecca also had a son named Francis Jr., and he inherited the property upon the death of his father. Now, he was only 14 at the time, so obviously he couldn't take over ownership of the home. So his mother stayed on the property, and she had remarried at that time. She had a husband named John Moore, and he had lived there as well. Moore would actually be the one to name the property Bell Grove. Francis Jr. would name his son Francis as well, and he went on to become a captain during the Revolutionary War. Captain Conway inherited Bell Grove, and he sold it to John Hipkins. John and his wife had a daughter named Fanny, and she would be their only surviving child. Because she was the only surviving child and she was a daughter, they had a lot of money. She was very spoiled. She got pretty much everything she wanted. And John even named one of his ships for her that was later captured by pirates. And they took off with the ship and the crew and everything, and they never saw it again. Fanny married when she was only 14 to a 19-year-old William Bernard. Her father tried to get William into the family business as a merchant, but apparently he was not very good at that. So Hipkins thought, well, let's see if he could try his hand at farming. So he bought Bell Grove. He gave the property to the couple for five shillings to see if William was better at farming. Before he gave the property to the couple, he built the center section of the house that still stands at Bell Grove today, and he did that in 1791. Hipkins himself lived at Rose Hill Plantation, which can be seen from Bell Grove, and people joke that he really bought this property so he could keep an eye on his daughter, or probably more fittingly, keep an eye on William. Fanny eventually passed away, and William remarried and moved from the property. He leased it out until his son, William Bernard Jr., was of age, and he was given the plantation. At this point, the land had expanded in acreage as parts of Port Conway were folded into it. So apparently we had Port Conway that was all this acreage and then a, just a portion of it was sold off as the plantation. I'm not sure how much the acreage was originally, but now they're going to start pulling more of it from Port Conway so that it becomes just part of the Belgrove plantation. William Jr. passed away and the plantation was taken over by his father again, who sold it to the husbands of his daughters, Eliza and Sarah Bernard, for one dollar. Sixteen days later, Belgrove was sold to Carolinas Turner. Apparently, the husbands didn't want the house, and they just sold it off to make some money on that. This was in 1839. So we've had the house already passing through a lot of hands. It's a lot of people 
who have bought it, a lot of family members who have inherited it. So it's seen a lot of owners at this point. And a little fun fact about this most recent owner, Carolinas, it's a pretty unusual name, right? Especially when I tell you that it's a guy's name. Well, he got his name because when his mother was pregnant with him, his parents were sure that they were going to have a girl because they already had two boys. So how could they not have a girl next? You know, (laughs) I guess they didn't realize that you could have 10 boys and never have a girl. But, you know, they decided that they were going to name their daughter Carolyn, which is a family name. To their surprise, their new daughter turned out to be a new son. They decided they wanted to go ahead and still hold on to that name, but try to make it a little bit more masculine. So they named him Carolinas. Carolinas would transform the manor house into much of what is seen today. The federal style was converted to Greek revival. He extended the sides, added the porticos, the curved porches, the small extension on the second floor, and added the curved steps that go up to the porch. And these were apparently made in England. He also added the architectural details all along the roof line and the ones that are seen on the exterior walls. Caroline is married and had five children and was doing very well financially until the Civil War started. The people who lived in the area joined the Confederate side, and the Rappahannock River that flowed nearby was a keen asset. Most men joined one of three military groups, the 9th Virginia Cavalry, the 47th Virginia Infantry Company E, otherwise known as the Port Royal Guards, or the Caroline Light Artillery. Fredericksburg was just up the road, and that is where most men reported, and in the end, most of them would fight within 75 miles of their homes. Port Royal and Port Conway would come under attack several times, but always managed to survive when the Confederates would push back Union forces. The area was important to General Robert E. Lee because he was born not too far from Port Conway and Port Royal at Stratford Hall, and his wife's cousin who lived at Claydale kept his two daughters through most of the Civil War, and Claydale was just nine miles from Belgrove Plantation. He saved Port Royal from being attacked once, but on another occasion in April 1863, a Union army of around 500 pillaged Port Royal. The men who joined the Confederate forces from this area suffered heavy losses, losing more than half of their numbers. Carolinas fought for the Confederate side, and he was issued a pardon by President Andrew Johnson. Historians believe that the Turner family was forced out of Belgrove Plantation during the war, and there are some historians who claim that it was used as a Union headquarters for a while. And as we know, that happened with a lot of these plantations. They went through and took all the rations and the animals and to help feed their troops and keep them going, and that is what happened here at the plantation as well. On April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth shot President Abraham Lincoln. As most of you know, this set off one of the most famous manhunts in history, and it's going to touch parts of the Belgrove Plantation. Booth and his co-conspirator David Harold spent 12 days on the run, traveling through Maryland and Virginia. On April 24th, 10 days after the assassination, Lieutenant Edward P. Doherty, who was leading a detachment of men in the pursuit, assembled them at Belgrove Plantation. A private, John W. Millington, who was part of this detachment, gave his account to the Portland Journal in early February of 1937. I've included a few of the excerpts here. On the morning of April 15, 1865, I was on guard when news came that President Lincoln had been shot at Ford's Theater. We were ordered to form part of a cordon to prevent the assassin from escaping. Our company was deployed through the brush. Lieutenant Doherty showed us a photograph of Booth and told us he had crossed the Potomac near Port Tobacco. We arrived at Aquia Creek and went ashore about 10 o'clock that night. 
We started scouting through the country, searching all houses and buildings, routing out the inmates, and making a thorough search. Next morning early, we met some men who'd been fishing. They said that a closed hack had passed a few days before with two men in it. A Confederate captain was in charge who warned them not to come near. They thought one of the men in the carriage resembled the photograph that we showed them of Booth. We were then on the road to the Rappahannock toward Port Conway when we arrived about 2 o'clock. We'd not eaten since leaving Washington, so we were told to fall out and rustle some rations. Ferrymen at the Rappahannock told us that Captain Jed of Mosby's command had crossed with two men in a closed carriage a few days before. We arrived at Bowling Green at 11 o'clock that night. We left our horses with every fourth man counted out to hold the horses. We surrounded the hotel where we captured Captain Jett. At first, he refused to tell us where he'd left the two men, but after some forcible persuasion, he agreed to show us. I wonder what that persuasion was. He said he didn't know who they were except that they were Confederate soldiers who had got into trouble in Maryland and wanted to hide out until the trouble had blown over. He led us back on the road by which we had come to within about three miles of Port Royal. He pointed out a house some distance from the road. We opened the gate carefully and after surrounding the house, knocked at the door. Garrett came to the door. Asked where the two men were, he said, I know nothing about any men being here. Our officer said to a trooper, untie your picket rope, we'll hang the old man and see if it will refresh his memory. A young man ran from the direction of an outbuilding and asked, what do you men want? Our officer said, we want the two men who are stopping here and at once. The young man said, they're in the barn. Part of our company was detailed to surround the barn and part to surround the house. I was with the party sent to the barn. Our lieutenant, who heard some whispering in the barn, called, Come out at once. One of the men inside the barn asked, Who are you? Our officer said, It doesn't make any difference who we are, but we know who you are. You'd better come out at once. The man in the barn who had done the talking was the man we were after, Booth. He refused to come out. He said, If you'll withdraw your men 30 rods, I will come out and we'll shoot it out. We could hear Booth accusing the man who was with him, David E. Harold, of being a coward. Harold was willing to surrender, and Booth said, You're a coward to desert me. Finally, Booth called out and said, Harold will surrender, but I will not. Our captain said, Tell Harold to pass out his arms and come out. Booth said, Harold has no arms. They belong to me. Our officer told Harold to come to the door. He came, and as he opened the door, Lieutenant Doherty grabbed him and pulled him out. With a picket rope, he tied him to a locust tree, called me, and told me to guard him. I said to Harold, who was in the barn with you? Was it Booth? He said, yes, Booth is in the barn. And he added, Booth told me when he asked me to help him that he was going to kidnap Lincoln. He didn't tell me he was going to kill him. I said, when you learned that Booth had killed Lincoln, why did you help him to escape? Harold said, Booth threatened to kill me if I didn't help him get away. Booth came out of the rear of the theater immediately after shooting Lincoln and we went to Dr. Mudd's house. After Dr. Mudd had set Booth's leg, we went to Port Tobacco and hid that day. That night, we got a fisherman to take us over the river into Virginia. It was so rough that the fisherman said it was unsafe, but Booth told him that we had to cross at once, and he would kill him if he didn't take us. Once more, the officer summoned Booth to surrender. Booth responded, I'll fight you single-handed, but I'll never surrender. Detective Conger went to the opposite side of the barn and lit some loose straw under the sill. I heard a shot, and a moment later saw the door was open. Booth had been shot through the neck. They brought him out, carried him to the Garrett house, and put him on the porch. A soldier was sent to Port Royal for a doctor who arrived about daylight. Meanwhile, the barn had burned down and some of the men were hunting in the ruins for relics. They found two revolvers and one of our boys got Booth's carbine. The revolvers were spoiled by the fire. Booth lived about three hours. He was wrapped in a government blanket, his body was placed in an old wagon, and a negro drove the rig to Aquia Creek, which we reached at dusk. 
I thought that would be an interesting account to share with you about the capture of Booth and how close it was here to Belgrove Plantation. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now, back to the Turners, who owned the property at the time and had been driven from the property during the Civil War. One of the Turner daughters would lease the property to two other families who turned the house into a type of duplex. One side was leased to Samuel Andrew McGinnis, and the other to an unknown African-American family. I thought it was very interesting. Not only do I not know if the Turner family actually ever returned to the home or if they just leased it, but the fact that they leased it to an African-American family right after the Civil War because there had been slaves that were kept on this plantation. I don't know. Actually, I do think that there were some there during the Turner's time. The house was sold in 1893 to John Taylor Thornton for $9,900, with part being paid in cash and the other being secured after the deed was executed. The Thornton family held it until 1906, and then it passed to the Jack family for a decade, then the South and West Improvement Company. The Hooker family bought it in 1930, and they owned it until 1987. Belgrove eventually fell into decline until it was bought by the Haas Corporation of Austria on August 28, 1987. The Haas Corporation had an office in Richmond and was responsible for making the equipment that makes waffle ice cream cones and all sorts of wafers, cookies, and crackers. You've probably heard of it. It's H-A-A-S. A major restoration wouldn't begin until 1997, and it was just in time as the house was nearly on the brink of collapse. So it was already not doing so well, and then they owned it for 10 years and I don't know if they just neglected it or what, but they finally woke up and said, if we don't do something, this house is going to crumble to the ground. Keep the house looking more original. Contractors made unique fixes to certain items. For example, they hollowed out wooden columns and filled them with an acrylic substance. The slate roof was replaced with a copper one. One of the interesting things found during the restoration is no war damage to the house. So it probably received no cannon or musket fire, which is pretty surprising because it was close to a lot of the battles. And then you also had the Union taking over the home. Another unique feature is that in the 1870s and 1880s, curved front walls and porches were added to the home. And so curved doors were fashioned from single large trunk trees. Crews working on the restoration had never seen such doors before. I've seen them in two houses that I visited, one of those being the Sorrel Wheat House in Savannah, Georgia. And they really are very cool because you're like, how in the world would have they curved these doors back in the 1800s? And you realize, well, they just had to find trees that actually were curved because that's the way trees are and they just hollowed them out to make the doors. Today, Belgrove Plantation stretches over 600 acres and the house itself sits on 20 acres and has 7,200 finished square feet with 11 fireplaces, both wood and gas, and 11 full and half bathrooms. A new kitchen with top-of-the-line appliances has replaced the smaller obsolete kitchen that was elsewhere in the house. Brett and Michelle Darnell purchased it in July 2011 and have transformed it into a world-class bed and breakfast. And if you look at pictures of the property, it is a gorgeous house inside and out. It's just they've done a marvelous job with it. 
Many guests and the Darnells themselves claim that the house is haunted. The rumors of hauntings caught the attention of sci-fi's ghost hunters, and they featured it in the Dead Presidents episode. A total of 23 full-bodied apparitions have been reported since March of 2013. Most of these are Union soldiers who've been standing guard at entry posts or walking in the fields. There are also two ghost cats. It's always unique to hear about one of them. They've got two of them here. And visitors and staff have heard their disembodied meowing. They felt them walk across beds during the night. And a couple of people have even claimed to feel them curl up on the pillows beside them. Usually people do not see them. They only hear them and feel them. But one guest claimed to actually see one of the cats and couldn't believe it when the Darnell said that they had no cats. So I don't know if they went down one morning for breakfast and said, hey, I love the cat that I saw in the hallway. What's its name? And the Darnells probably said, "Uh, we don't have a cat. Ghostly faces and orbs with faces have been captured in pictures. Michelle Darnell says that the more well-known ghosts are a girl dressed in white who stands on the balcony, an African-American girl in a yellow dress that wears a turban and seems to be carrying an object of some sort, and an apparition of a soldier that has been so clear that Michelle says she could see the color of his hair. She also said back in September 2012, our caretaker and his family were living in our quarters in the mansion as their home was without power due to an electrical fire. They told us during their stay they woke up around 4 a.m. in the morning to what sounded like a rubber ball bouncing on the floor. It really scared them. To this day, the caretaker's wife doesn't like to come in at night alone. Just after this event, I started having, quote-unquote, things happen during our visits to the mansion. This was before I moved up in April 2013. I'd heard if you set down the rules with the ghosts, for the most part, they would follow them. So that's just what I did. And my rules are as follows. One, you can't call or whisper my name. Two, I don't need to hear footsteps or doors slam to let me know you're here because I know you are here. Three, I don't want to see you because it can scare me. (laughs) I can agree with that one. I think that'd be one of the rules I'd set down too. Four, if we have guests that are afraid of ghosts, we ask that you don't make your presence known. We don't want people scared of the mansion because we have to make money to keep the doors open. Hence, if you want to keep a place to stay, don't scare the money away. Five, if a guest comes and is wanting to see or talk to you and you're up for it, then you have our blessing. Go for it. Six, when I'm in my room, which is in the mansion and my door is closed, you aren't to come in. I don't want to see you standing in the room or wait to see you watching me. This is my space and I need to feel safe. Those sound like some pretty reasonable rules. She said, since I made the rules, things have really calmed down. For the most part, they seem to understand and comply with them. The Darnells had a medium come into the home in December of 2012. Her name was Lane Crosby, and she claimed that there were two boys, twins, that were standing at a door. She told them to come in, but they claimed that they could not because, quote, Mama says we can't play in there anymore. Lane also explained that the boys said that they were the ones who bounced the ball. She didn't know what they were talking about, but Michelle did. That was the ball that her caretaker had heard. The ball continues to bounce every so often in the second floor hall. There are reports of a boy named Jacob bouncing a ball in the house, and I wonder if he is one of these twins, because I didn't see anywhere where these twins might have been named by the medium. But I did see some paranormal groups who made claims that there was a Jacob in the home that was supposedly bouncing the ball. So I don't know if those two things go together or not. He is described as being mischievous in his nature and loves to move and even steal kitchen utensils from time to time. Paranormal teams have recorded EVPs of Jacob in the Turner Suite, which everyone claims is one of the most active spots in the entire building. 
Michelle also said in July 2013, one of our guests who had stayed the night told me that she'd heard a woman's voice on the second floor where she was sleeping. The woman called out twins in a song-like manner. We figured the boys and their mom were now hanging out upstairs. This morning around 4 a.m. I woke and couldn't get back to sleep. I sat up for an hour and watched a little TV to relax myself, tried to get back to sleep around 5.30 a.m. Just as I got comfortable, I heard at the end of the bed a rubber ball bouncing. I knew at once it was the twin boys playing. These boys have been a little more active over the last month. They've gone as far as to hide my kitchen utensils from me, only to return them later. So I knew they were being mischievous this morning. Called out to them saying, Okay, you know you aren't supposed to be in here. Please leave so I can sleep. Just after I said that, I heard a woman's voice say, Come. So I guess the boys were called down by their mother and she got them out of the room. So I find it interesting that we have a mother and two boys who are relatively older, I would think. They're not toddlers necessarily, maybe, that passed away here. And I don't know the story behind that. I didn't see anywhere with these families that were owning this location that any of them had lost a wife and twin sons. So I'm not sure where they're coming from. But apparently they all seem to be locked in the house and she's still keeping after them. Michelle has seen soldiers countless times and said, I saw four late one evening as I was leaving the house to go to dinner. It was just twilight, but I could still see pretty well. As I turned the corner of the walkway, there standing between me and my car were these four soldiers, dressed as you would expect, Civil War period. You could even make out their height and difference in looks. At this point, I had seen so many it had become commonplace, so I jokingly said, you could have at least turned the light on. The light is a motion-detected light we have on the garage. We have two of them, one on each side. At the point I said this, I wasn't close enough for it to turn on, but not a second later, the lights came on. Now, they think it's their job to turn them on. The last time was during a really bad storm that produced a tornado in the area. I was racing home to beat the storm. When I arrived at our white entry post, the lights came on. I was over an acre away. I laughed and said, guys, I'm not there yet. My husband said that he thought an animal could be triggering it. So on the way back to the house one night, just as we got halfway down the drive to the garage, the lights turned on. I looked at my husband and said, see, there were no animals around. The soldiers have also been seen by our overnight guests. One couple were leaving for dinner when they saw what looked like riding boots quickly crossing the driveway. They caught this when their headlights flashed around as they turned out of their parking space. Other soldiers we have seen, one standing guard at the white entry post, he had a gun resting beside his leg as if he were standing at attention, Another was seen as we came home from dinner. As we drove down the highway that runs beside our property, I saw a soldier cross the highway and walk into our plantation field. Our plantation was held as a Union Federal Headquarters from 1861 to the end of the war. General Burnside, General Robert E. Lee, and General Stonewall Jackson have all been here. It's quite the lineup. One last sighting of a soldier happened when I first arrived. The next morning, I was up sweeping the formal dining room. We didn't have any furniture at the time, and I was just doing something to keep busy. As I glanced out of the formal dining room window, I saw a Union soldier walking from the side of our porch along the outside wall area going towards the south side of the house. He had a blue shirt, untucked, black belt on the outside of his shirt, blue pants, a Union cap with a symbol on top, no pack or gun, and had brown hair that was shoulder length. He didn't have glasses, and he was walking with his head down, so I couldn't see his face. Michelle says that she is not afraid to be in the house alone and feels almost comforted by the ghosts. Much of the activity is settled since the remodeling is done. And the Darnells feel that the ghosts are happy with them because they are remembering and honoring their past. Southeast Virginia Paranormal Investigations hosted a ghost hunt in 2013 and reported, On Saturday in the summer kitchen using the spirit box, Todd asked questions and was getting responses. 
he found that he was talking to someone named Robert. Robert stated that he was a visitor to the plantation during the Conway period. He also stated that he had died from being hung. He stated that he was hung by someone named Edward. From what I know of the plantation and its history, I do not have any confirmation that anyone was hung there. But of course, things happened that were never reported or recorded. They also had experiences in the Turner Suite using a ghost box. A man and woman came through. The Belgrove website says, The woman didn't speak much, but the man did. When Todd asked if the man could see him, the answer was yes. Todd asked if the man could see him all the time, and the answer was no. Todd asked him what he had on his head, and the man answered, a hat. Todd started waving his hand. He asked the man what he, Todd, was doing. The man answered, waving. Todd grabbed his vest that he was wearing and pulled on it. He asked the man what he was pulling, and the man answered, vest. When Todd asked the man his name or time period, the man would not answer. For those of you who have had experiences with ghost boxes, you know that eh, sometimes you can think to yourself, well, it's just the radio blurting out certain words that just may happen to coincide with whatever we're doing here. But to have these kinds of responses that are very specific to specific things that this investigator was doing, I don't know, makes you stop to think for a moment. Maybe there was something going on here, but I do find it interesting that it wouldn't give a name or time period. Is there a reason why? Did he not understand the questions? Was this a soldier who was not supposed to give that kind of information? I don't know. It's just interesting that it would answer all of his questions until it got personal for that spirit. The ghost hunters caught evidence on their investigation in 2014 as well that seems to back up many of the claims made by the Darnells and their guests. Jason and Steve heard growling. Tango and Sam heard a whistling noise. And the team agreed that the basement definitely was haunted. Now, I don't know what stories there are from the basement. The only people who've had experiences there that I know of would be the Ghost Hunters team. But apparently something was going on down there that they said, yeah, this place has got something going on here. Regular ghost hunts are hosted at the house and a Facebook page details their findings. It would seem that the plantation is not only famous for its rich history, but also for its plethora of spirits. Is Belgrove Plantation haunted? That is for you to decide. This looks like a gorgeous property, and since it's a bed and breakfast, sounds like a great place to stay. Might have to check it out when I'm going up there to Virginia. want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com, and if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I've already gotten several submissions to our Flash Fiction contest. The deadline for you to submit your Flash Fiction is midnight Eastern Time on September 8th, 2018, And as has always been the case when we've run this contest, the word limit is 1,000 words. That's why it's called Flash Fiction. If you go over a tad, that's okay. Try to keep it within the 1,000 words. It's very, very difficult, but it also makes it easier for us to share it with everyone. Needs to be creepy or scary and keep it at a lower R rating. So not a lot of gratuitous sex, language, and gore, something you wouldn't mind your parents reading. We'll have a first, second, and third place winner, and I will be reading those on October 1st for History Goes Bump's four-year anniversary show. We'll share a couple of the runners up if we have time, and then I keep a few for reading on Christmas Eve when we share our ghost stories around the campfire. So you can just send those submissions to the email at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Thank you to those of you who've already entered. Have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. The first is from Jen D. Nichols. Love five stars. Found this podcast because it was mentioned on the History Chicks podcast Facebook private group. And I'm so thankful to the lovely lady who suggested your podcast. 
Well, thank you to whoever did that. And the History Ticks is a great podcast. So fabulous, fun, informative, spooky enough to be fun, thought provoking. But I can listen to this with my preteen boys and them not lose sleep. They love history as much as I keep up the great work. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that your boys are listening as well. Something I take pride in that the entire family can listen to this podcast. Thank you. And Sam, 103-11944, great shows, five stars. I've listened to several shows, not all yet. Love the history, love the ghost stories, keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Sam, appreciate that. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery... Pac-Man Impact Site, who will be getting a spot on the niche wall. Laura Teigen-Jovog and Angie Wallenford are going to be getting chest tombs. And Teddy Clark, you're going to be getting a fancy schmancy mausoleum. Thank you for joining the rest of the executive producers in supporting my endeavor here with History Ghost Bump. It is greatly appreciated. Hey, Mort, have you ever played or heard of Pac-Man? Um, is that the one with ghosts? Yes, it has ghosts. I like ghosts. I think we all do. They are my pets. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.